breast cancer. Those are two words your patients don't want to hear and news that you don't want to deliver. Unfortunately for one in eight American women, it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime. And the risks are clear. Besides being female, the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history. In fact, about 80% of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older. And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry. My mom had breast cancer, but I'm only 43. The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lilly has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer, find out about events they can attend in their city, and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too. I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. Answers that matter. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Prenatal screening for Down syndrome began over 30 years ago with multiple maternal serum markers, and since then research has exploded, and the patient desire for greater clarity in genetic screening has skyrocketed. To update us on the newest and most accurate forms of prenatal genetic diagnosis, we are joined today by Dr. Lee Shulman. Dr. Shulman is the Director of the Reproductive Genetic Department at Northwestern University Medical School and Prentice Women's Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Shulman. Great to be here. Thanks. So we were just talking about prenatal diagnosis and the idea of how confusing this is to patients and to physicians. And I think we just need to start with some clarification of what is prenatal screening versus prenatal diagnosis when we talk about genetic screening and testing? Well, you know, it, it's a great question because we frequently interchange the two phrases and yet they represent two very different things. And I think it's because of that lack of clarity that sometimes our patients get even more confused. Prenatal screening essentially is applied to a population to identify people within that population who may benefit from diagnosis. But I think you and I have both had lots of patients who said, well, I had that screening test, it was wrong, when in fact the screening test wasn't wrong. The screening test identified somebody to be at higher risk. That woman then chose to undergo an amniocentesis, and fortunately the amniocentesis showed a normal result. Screening identifies the people, should be reported as positive or negative because not everybody who has a positive result has an abnormal outcome, and unfortunately not everybody with a negative result has a normal outcome. 
Diagnosis, like with chorionic villus sampling or amniocentesis, is normal or abnormal. The result is either normal or abnormal. But we tend to mix these concepts, and at times it really does even worsen the confusion that our patients are going through when they find out they're pregnant and they're being thrown a lot of terms and a lot of tests to consider. Absolutely. Now, would you say then when we describe this to patients that prenatal screening is a test of ratio, a test of possibilities as opposed to a test of definites? Actually, it's Las Vegas. You're just trying to figure out what the odds are. You start out with what we call the a priori risk, which is primarily based on a woman's age. We then adjust that risk. We adjust it higher. We adjust it lower based on, depending on what time of the pregnancy and and what they choose, based on either serum analytes like alpha-fetoprotein or HCG, or based on ultrasound markers like the thickness of the nuchal translucency or even some others like the presence or absence of a nasal bone. And all that information is then tossed into a a big computer, and then out comes sort of a fortune cookie that says screen positive or screen negative, usually with some numbers to say where the the risk has gone, whether it's up or down. But that's essentially is prenatal screening, lots of different markers, serum or otherwise, uh, coming together to adjust the risk. Who do you think should be the candidate for prenatal genetic screening? Well, if we go to the American College of OBGYN criteria, essentially everybody. And I really have to applaud ACOG because they, I think, have really figured out this maelstrom and uh, what they have come to us, to women's health care providers with, I think, is a very evidence-based approach, which is every woman, whether she's 19 years old, whether she's 49 years old, needs to be made aware of and made available and offered prenatal screening that risk adjustment, or invasive prenatal diagnosis. That clearly is a very big change, I think, for both you and I, having grown up in the advanced maternal age of over 35, and that's when we offer. But in this way, because we've had, in the last few years, some very large and important articles that have shown that the risks of invasive testing are considerably less than we have historically recognized, that there are implications, limitations in particular with prenatal screening, so that it's perhaps best that all women, regardless of risk, be offered both approaches. I think that's absolutely true. I remember very clearly when I started in practice about 13 years ago, almost all of our patients were between age 33 and 42, and everyone over 35 got some sort of usually invasive genetic screening. And everyone else, you would chat with them about it, but they wouldn't be pushed in any way, shape, or form for it. And I think we have really turned around two ways. We're doing genetic screening for more of the patient population, regardless of age. And I'm also finding the people who are in the advanced maternal age category, those over 35, are having more non-invasive testing than invasive testing now. Right. I think everybody, regardless of what they may hear from you or me about the safety of invasive testing, really, are, are, I don't know of anybody who's sane who is running to have a needle stuck in them or a catheter passed through them. So if there is an opportunity to not undergo invasive testing, I think people are looking for that. The problem that we have, and I'm going to say since both of us practice in the same hospital, the issue, I won't say it's a problem, is how low do you need to go? Translate that. What risk is a risk low enough that you're not going to undergo testing because both you and I have women, 35, 38, 40 years old, undergo non-invasive screening. They get an adjusted risk of 1 in 10,000 for Down syndrome. 
very low. Well, they look at you and they say, mm, I'm still a little concerned. And so what I tend to talk to women about is, is there a risk? Is there a number below which you'll feel comfortable not undergoing invasive testing? Because if there is not a number, don't waste your money to have screening. I mean, if you're just doing this to sort of uh, feel a little better about undergoing the invasive testing, that's fine. But recognize we're going to be giving you an adjusted risk. And if there is no adjusted risk at which you're going to say, okay, I don't want to go invasive testing, the screening is not so much wasted, but it's not really doing what it's supposed to do. And I think I find this often patients are either reluctant to have genetic screening done because they're afraid they then have to have something invasive like an amniocentesis. But at the same time, they can't go through the pregnancy without the answer to the question of, is my baby genetically healthy? So with that in mind, what do you think we as practitioners should be doing to give, if you will, informed consent or um, help our patients make this decision about whether or not they should get genetic screening? Well, I think in particular for prenatal assessment, the most important part, the rate-limiting step in this process is the counseling step. And that counseling step, the time that a practitioner spends in counseling, they will save an inordinate amount of time down the road with having dealt with particular issues and address them beforehand, prospectively rather than retrospectively. Prenatal counseling, assessing what the risk is, doing some sort of family history assessment, talking about what's available in your community and in, in the particular community is really the most important and really an essential part of this process, whether it be screening or diagnosis. You know, I frequently tell audiences and students and residents that the signed consent to do the procedure doesn't protect you from anything. You have to get a signed consent to do an invasive procedure. But when I hear about physicians getting patients to sign so-called consents that they're not going to have invasive testing, it's ridiculous. You do good counseling. You document that counseling. We discuss what the risks are. We reviewed what, what was available. And the way I do it is I never do it in an adversarial. They refuse to. Nobody refuse to. They choose not to undergo amniocentesis. They choose to have an, uh, an ultrasound. Don't get the patient assigned it, just document it well. And the phrase that I like to use in that is verbalized understanding. Now, you and I are talking right now. I'm not really sure that you understand what I'm saying, but if I ask you, Lisa, do you understand what I just said? And you said yes, you verbalized understanding. I would tell you that even if I didn't, though. <laughs> but in that way, the counseling process, whether it's by the obstetrician, whether they're referred to a genetic counselor or to a genetic center, that really is the critical issue. And the earliest that it's done so that the patient is aware of her options, the better the outcomes are, are going to be for everyone. You know, it's interesting. I think when we do consent patients or inform them about the information they need to know regarding this testing, I often wondered if the decision-making is because of the bias of the person counseling or if it's the patient's underlying thought. And there was recently a wonderful review article from some practitioners in Detroit in March of 2007 talking about how there was absolutely no difference in patients' kind of decision-making based on the biasness of the practitioner giving the consent. And I found that fascinating because I really felt that that would not be the case. Well, it's interesting. We, in our graduate program in genetic counseling, uh, non-directive counseling is the foundation for everything that happens there. But the, the recognition is that that is the ideal. Everybody brings some sort of personal baggage to the process, whether it's verbal, whether it's nonverbal, regardless of what it is, your opinion comes through in some way, no matter how much we try 
tried to, to keep it hidden. And unfortunately, people have thought non-directiveness meant that you didn't care. I am passionate about the process by which I'm helping that patient get through. What her ultimate decision is to continue, not continue, to have a test is of absolutely no interest to me. And I tell them that I don't care what her ultimate decision is. What I care about is that I've given her the information, the emotional support, whatever, to make a decision that's right for her. Now, just to look at some of the practicalities, when you're looking at the cost of prenatal genetic screening versus a more invasive test, does insurance usually cover most of these tests? (laughs) Bringing up cost, I think, is bringing up a critical issue. One of the things that concerns me about this increasing complexity and availability of screening protocols is that screening has always meant to have three fundamental characteristics, one of which is cost-effectiveness. One of the reasons why I believe the American College went back to suggest that invasive testing be offered to everyone in addition was that that's probably less costly at this point than the screening test. So patients need to check with their insurance carrier before beforehand, and it really is an iffy situation that really changes from plan to plan. Thank you so much, Dr. Shulman. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.